Welcome back to CNN's Town Hall on the Climate Crisis. I'm Chris Cuomo, and we're here with the top 10 candidates for President of the United States. They're unveiling their plans to fight climate change, and as an audience, we will be testing their ideas. Now, right now, Hurricane Dorian is hovering off the east coast of the United States. We're seeing storms that are intensifying, and that's just one sign of the dangerous world that scientists tell us we're entering if humans don't cut carbon pollution in half in the next 11 years, and then to net zero by 2050. So let's deal with the instant circumstance with Dorian. Let's get the latest on the hurricane and go to CNN Weather Center with Jennifer Gray. Jennifer, what are we seeing now? Well, Chris, the latest with the storm, it's almost a Category 3, just barely hanging on to that Category 2 status with winds 110 miles per hour. 111 would be a Category 3 with gusts of 130. Moving to the north at 8, right now it's about 130 miles south of Charleston. They will be feeling the tropical storm force winds tonight, and conditions will continue to deteriorate as we go through tomorrow. Already getting those rain bands from South Carolina all the way down through Georgia, and even Florida still feeling it as well. Could be a Category 2, possibly fluctuating to a Category 3 sometime overnight tonight into tomorrow. We'll have to wait and see. But Charleston could get quite a bit of storm surge. That's going to be one of the main threats. And then as the storm races off to the north, North Carolina is in it just as much, Chris, with a lot of storm surge, wind and rain. Right. And you have areas that aren't used to taking storm surge. So we'll be staying on the coverage. We'll be needing your help. Jennifer, thank you very much. And of course, the idea of bigger and bigger hurricanes more and more frequently, that's one of the things scientists are worried about and point to as an indication of imminent climate change. So what do you say? It's time to get some answers to voters' questions. Let's bring in Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren. All right. Let's get right to the audience. What do you say, Senator? Let's bring in Diana Krantz from Philadelphia. She's retired. She's working on her second novel. Diana, what's your question? Wow, Diana. Okay. What was the first one? <laughs> uh, I'm not going to say. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> this was your big it's chance. It's not related to the climate. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to help here, Diana. Okay. Anyway, thank you for this opportunity. Most economists believe that a carbon tax is the most efficient uh-huh. way to reduce carbon emissions. Would you push for such a tax? And if not, please explain why you don't favor that approach. So I think of this as what my mother taught me. And that is, you've got to clean up your own messes. And that means if you're going to be spewing carbon into the air and messing up the air for the rest of us, it's your responsibility to clean it up. And we've been talking about this for a long time. We've actually started putting parts of this in place in New England uh, and other regional areas. But yes, we need to say that those who are throwing the carbon into the air that the rest of us have to breathe, that the rest of us have to deal with, are the ones who are responsible for paying for that. So I'm there. Yes, yes to a carbon tax. How much? What kind of number you got? If it's President Warren, what do you do? Actually, what I want to do, though, is I want to talk about, I'm glad you raised this, I want to talk about the ways we make change and how we think about change. We've been talking about a carbon tax for a very long time, and like I said, we've had some regional experiments, some different places, and it's been shown to have some good effects. But I actually have a more aggressive plan that I want to move to. I want to think about the three areas where we get the most carbon pollution in America right now. And what are they? 
They're in our buildings and homes, right, what we're burning. It's our cars and light-duty trucks that we drive. And it's the generation of electricity where we're still using a lot of carbon-based fuel to make that happen. So you may remember that Governor Jay Inslee said, let's get tough on this and let's put in place some real rules about this. So what I've adopted is by 2028, we don't have any more new building that has any carbon footprint. By 2030, we do the same thing on vehicles, on our cars and light-duty trucks. And by 2035, we do the same thing on electric generation. That'll cut 70% of the carbon that we are currently spewing into the air. That's how you make a real difference. All right, so let's go back to the audience for uh, a question about how we'll be generating power. We want to mm-hmm. bring in Zach O'Neill from Staten Island, New York. He's a sustainability manager for Columbia University. Zach. Hi, Zach. Hi, Senator Warren. How are you? I'm doing good. How about you? I'm good tonight. Good, I'm good. good. I'm Depending glad. On you answer. feeling sustainable? <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, good. So my question is, what is your opinion on the prospect of nuclear energy to help replace fossil fuels? And uh, what do the uh, risks outweigh any potential benefits? So you rightly point out about nuclear energy. It's not carbon-based, but the problem is it's got a lot of risks associated with it, particularly the risks associated with the spent fuel rods that nobody can figure out how we're going to store these things for the next bazillion years. So here's how I see it. In my administration, we're not going to build any new nuclear power plants. And we are going to start weaning ourselves off nuclear energy and replacing it with renewable fuels over, we're going to get it all done by 2035, but I hope we're getting it done faster than that. That's the plan. Mm. Thank you. You bet. Thank you. You know, when you look at Germany as a model, uh, Mm -hmm. their ambitions, it's being reported that they're going to fall short. One of the problems they have is balancing types of power. Um, When it's bright and sunny, they generate so much wind and solar that it can flood the market. and puts the wholesale price almost to zero. Uh, When it's dark in the wintertime when they need the power, they have to use nuclear. They have to look for other sources. Can the ambition meet the reality of phasing out fossil fuels and not using something like nuclear, at least in the short term? So remember, it's not only about production, it's also about storage. And to the extent we do a better job, for example, in how to store all of that energy, then you get to use solar power at high noon, but you also get to use it at midnight. So I'm going to tell you where I place my biggest bet, and that is on science. You know, I really believe in science. Uh, but, But really the point is, and this is a big part of one of my plans, and that is that we put a lot of money into the science, into research, into development. Think of it this way. Back when we first started talking about auto emissions, when you couldn't breathe the air for days on end in L.A., and they said, we just, we just got to roll back on these emissions. We set emission standards that at that moment, the auto industry said, we got no way to meet them. And the answer was, figure out a way. They developed the catalytic converter. And lo and behold, they cut emissions. So I see this as this is our moment. Make that investment in science. Make that investment in research and development. And that's how it is that we will both have more renewable generation, but more to the point, we will also have more storage 
so that renewable power makes more sense 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. So quick step into the future. You win the nomination. I like that. You're Say on that the debate. Again. So far, uh-huh. the premise okay. is good. good. Uh, the, you're on the debate stage. Uh-huh. You're across from the president. And he says the Green New Deal is a dream because we're 60 percent right now on fossil fuels. You're saying you want to put into research and get it done, but you don't know how right now. No. So you want to bet our economy on an ambition. What's the answer? He says the Green New Deal is a dream. I'm assuming I would he say, says it. No, I don't know what he'd say. It no, may not but be that I'm nice. just saying where he is right now is a nightmare. <laughs> and that's where we really do have to start this conversation. Don't sit around and tell me what's not possible. Sit around and look what happens if we don't make change. You know, we've got what? 11 years, maybe, to, to reach a point where we've cut our emissions in half. And that's not just America. We're only 20% of the problem. Now, that's a big hunk of the problem. But there's another world out there that's 80% of this problem. So you bet that this is a moment where we better dream big and fight hard. Because that's how it is that we're going to make the changes we need to make. Now, part of it is going to be about research and development, you bet. Part of it, we already know how to do We know how to do offshore wind. We know how to do solar. The question is, are we willing to put the resources into it? And my answer is, yeah, we better be willing to put the resources into it because the alternative is unthinkable. Life on Earth is at risk. And if we don't make this commitment, we not only cheat our children, we cheat their future and their children's future, and that is morally wrong. We have to be all the way so let's get an audience uh, question about what you want to move away from. Let's bring in Robin Happel, uh, Johnson City, Tennessee, an environmental law student at Pace University. Fabulous. Good to see you. Good evening. Um, as someone who is born and raised in southern Appalachia, I have seen firsthand the devastating impact of mountaintop removal coal yeah. mining. Would your administration support policies like the Appalachian Communities Health Emergency Act, H.R. 2050, that take into account the impact coal has in our communities and help provide a path forward. And Senator, I know you know this, but just for the audience, 2050 says that they're going to halt any permits for mountaintop uh, coal mining until there's an assessment done of impact on surrounding communities. And the answer is yes. We need to go where we were talking about earlier. You don't get to ruin the air for everyone else, the water for everyone else, the soil for everyone else. We don't just to help giant corporations. They don't get to make our kids sick. They don't get to shorten lifespans because it increases their profitability. You know what I think is the fundamental question right now? is how have we gotten ourselves into this mess? How has it gone this long when the climate science year after year after year has told us It's getting more and more dangerous out there. It's getting worse and worse for life on this earth. And the answer is because of Washington. We have a Washington that works great for the wealthy and the well-connected. A Washington that is working great for giant oil companies that want to drill everywhere. It's just not working for the rest of us who see climate change bearing down upon us. When you see a government that works great for those with money, 
a government that works great for those who can make big campaign contributions and hire armies of lobbyists and lawyers, and it's not working for everybody else. That is corruption, pure and simple, and we need to call it out for what it is. Fight back. So, Senator, back to the scenario. You win the nomination. You're on the debate stage. Keep saying it. And and your opponent says, okay, I get it. You want to run away from fossil fuels. Fine, science, science. What about those workers? No, now? I want to breathe the air and drink the water. And so, and so do the people working at the fossil fuel company. Yep. They're worried they're not going to have a job and that all of these solutions go out into the future, but damn them in the immediate. What do you do to those men and women who are working in that industry now who worry about being displaced? See, you know, I think this is one of the best parts about the Green New Deal. It's not only about setting the targets on green so that we save this planet. It's about a new deal for people who work. It's about justice for people whose communities have been destroyed. It's about racial justice on environmental issues. It's about worker justice. So here's what I propose. I have among my many plans, uh, one of the ones is about a green manufacturing plant. So let me use that one as an example. Um, Coming up, There is an estimated $17 trillion market for green around the world. Think about it. Green generation of power, but also green uh, uh, to take carbon out of the air, to clean up the water, uh, desalinization. And by the way, a lot of this stuff hasn't been invented yet. So you see this giant worldwide market. People want to do this or at least feel like they need to because they see what's happening. What can we do? And I've got a three-part answer to that. The first is make the big investment in science and research and development, the things we do best here in America. Part two is we say to the world, you can produce whatever we come up with in our science, whatever devices, you can have it, you can apply it, but whatever is manufactured from it, You have to manufacture right here in the United States of America. That will produce an estimated 1.2 million new manufacturing jobs, good jobs, union jobs, not jobs that pay less, not jobs that are an afterthought, but real jobs. So that's part one of it. We want to sell this stuff around the world. That's how you generate a, a change in how we see both our economy building unions, building good jobs, and at the same time, both saving our own nation and the rest of the world on the climate front. These are the kind of changes that we can make together. And let me say one more thing about workers, because I don't want to I don't want to miss this chance. Understand, we need our smart workers. We need the guys and the gals who've been sitting around for a long time, who know how to read plans and they know how to move big equipment and they know how to help us because we're going to need to rebuild our infrastructure around this country. There are places where we're going to need to harden our infrastructure. The oceans are rising. Uh, You know, I visit a lot of port cities. I live in one. We are going to have to make big change and that means we need our workers. We need our workers to be there to help us to be partners in this, and quite frankly, to have the good, well-paying jobs as part of that. This is a win-win for everybody. This is how we go into the future and build an America that is both green 
and an America that's not just working for the profits for the fossil fuel industry, but an America that's working for everybody. So, a quick question about going from the worker to the consumer. Today, the president announced plans to roll back energy-saving light bulbs, and he wants to reintroduce four different kinds which I'm not going to burden you with, but one of them is the candle-shaped ones, and those, those are a favorite for a lot of people, by the way. But do you think that the government should be in the business of telling you what kind of light bulb you can have? Oh, come on. Give me a break. You know... Is that look, a yes? No. Here's... It, look, there are a lot of ways that we try to change our energy consumption and our pollution, and God bless all of those ways. Some of it is with light bulbs, some of it is on straws, some of it, dang, is on cheeseburgers, right? There are a lot of different pieces to this. And I get that people are trying to find the part that they can work on and what can they do. And I'm in favor of that, and I'm going to help, and I'm going to support. But understand, this is exactly what the fossil fuel industry hopes we're all talking about. (laughs) That's what they want us to talk about. This is your problem They want to be able to stir up a lot of controversy around your light bulbs, around your straws, and around your cheeseburgers. When 70% of the pollution of the carbon that we're throwing into the air comes from three industries, and we can set our targets and say by 2028, 2030, and 2035, no more. Think about that right there. Now, the other 30 percent we still got to work on. Oh, no, we don't stop at 70 percent. But the point is, that's where we need to focus. And why don't we focus there? It's corruption. It's these giant corporations that keep hiring the PR firms that does it. Everybody has fun with it. Right. Gets it all out there. So we don't look at who's still making the big bucks of polluting our earth. The time for that is past. We have a chance, a chance left in 2020 to turn this around. But we are, we are running out of time on this one. So we've got to do this in 2020. And that means the first thing we've got to do is we've got to attack this corruption head on in Washington and say enough of having the oil industry, the fossil fuel industry, write all our laws in this area. No more. No more. Let's bring in Robert Wood from Brooklyn, New York. He's a writer and climate organizer for 350 Brooklyn. Robert. Hi, Robert. Hi. Uh, Bernie Sanders has endorsed the idea of the public ownership of utilities, arguing that we can't adequately solve this crisis without removing the profit motive from the distribution of essential needs like energy. As president, would you be willing to call out capitalism in this way and advocate for the public ownership of our utilities? Gosh, you know... I'm not sure that that's what gets you to the solution. Um, I'm perfectly willing to take on giant corporations. I think I've been known to do that once or twice. But for me, I think the way we get there is we just say, sorry, guys, but by 2035, you're done. You're not going to be using any more carbon-based fuels. That, that gets us to the right place. And if somebody wants to make a profit from building better solar panels, and generating better battery storage. I'm not opposed to that. What I'm opposed to is when they do it in a way that hurts everybody else. You shouldn't be able to externalize these costs. That's the problem with fossil fuels right now. I think that the best way we go forward here is we 
We open up the opportunities. We open up the possibilities. We invest in the science. We invest in the manufacturing. We invest in the pieces that let us build a future together going forward. But, you know, I just want to be clear. We've got to have tough rules that we are willing to enforce. And that means we have got to be willing to fight back against these giant industries. And that's where the whole thing starts for me. We put them on their back foot, then we have a real chance to make the changes we need to make. And that's what it's going to take. Senator Warren, let's take a quick break. We'll be back with more questions for the senator. And in a moment, we're going to have South Bend, Indiana, Mayor Pete Buttigieg will join us next. Stay with CNN. just minutes, we're going to hear from South Bend, Indiana, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, and then we have former Congressman Beto O'Rourke. But right now we have Senator Elizabeth Warren. Let's get some more questions. All right. Thanks for being here so Glad far. To be here. Now, I want to bring Thanks in another member so of the far. office. Uh-huh. Well, you know, you never know how it goes. You may change your opinion. Uh-huh. All right. Chantel Comerdale. Uh, she's from a narrow island of land in Louisiana known as Isle de Jean Charles. It's rapidly disappearing because of rising sea levels yep. and coastal erosion. Chantel, thank you very much for being with us. What's your question, Chantel? Thank you. So, as he said, I'm from the island of Jean Charles, Biloxi, Chittimacha, Choctaw tribe. We've been dubbed as many as by as the first American climate refugees. Uh-huh. We had a front row seat to climate change for the past 20 years. I was had to move my home from my island home when I was little due to mold-induced asthma and um, from repeat flooding, repeat flooding. So my question to you is, if president, what changes would you make to support communities like mine who face community-wide displacement and cultural erasure? Yeah. So let me start by saying how very sorry I am. It's got to be hard to watch your homelands disappear like this and know that you've done everything you can do, but that the forces bigger than you have taken over. And um, so I see it this way. Uh, Part one is that everything we spend on climate has to be about reducing our carbon footprint. It has to be about justice as well, though, for people who've been displaced, for workers who've been displaced, uh, for uh, people in communities of color who have, for generations now, been the ones where the toxic dumps got sited next to their homes, their children, breathe the nasty particulates that brought on asthma. Their seniors died earlier. And so part of this change is not only about reducing climate footprint, about reducing our pollution of this earth, but it's about trying to help those who've been injured from all that's happened. So part of what I have reference to in the plan. It's not all the way stretched out yet, and so I'm still working on this. And want to work on this with the communities that are affected. Is making sure that this money goes down to the community level, that it doesn't just all happen in two or three places around the country that can make the most noise, that are the biggest, that it doesn't go, I'll just be blunt, to governors. It goes all the way down to the communities that are affected. And if I can, I just want to add one more piece. 
You know, when, when I think about climate, it is the existential threat. It is the one that threatens all life on this planet, that every day we're losing species. It's changing. The oceans are getting more acidic. So when I first started thinking about how to describe what I will fight for when I run for president, I decided I wasn't going to do one climate plan. I decided I was going to try to look at climate in every part of the plans I'm working on. So that means I've got a lot of places where this comes in, because that's how I see it. It's not going to be a one and done that's all confined. It's that it hits in different places. So, for example, on the policies about our relationship, our federal government's relationship with our native tribes, it's about respecting the tribe's ability to take care of their own land, to be good stewards of the land. And a commitment as president that I will not approve any plans for the use of federal lands that are near tribal lands that can affect what happens on tribal lands or sacred lands that are sacred to our Native American brothers and sisters, that I will not do that without the prior informed consent of the neighboring tribes. I think that's how we help tribes be the stewards of the land that they had been for generations, and I know they will be for generations to come. Senator Warren, uh, let me tell you a story about neighbors in Port Arthur, Texas. We have a little mm-hmm. video here. I've been to Port Arthur. You've been to mm-hmm. Port Arthur, then you know what it looks like. Uh, this is the Motiva oil refinery. It is the biggest in the world, or at least in North America. Mm-hmm. It is in Port Arthur, but it's owned by a Saudi Arabian company that made more profit, twice as much profit as Apple computers mm-hmm. last year. Mm-hmm. Although right next door... I met a family in a $60,000 house that can't afford to fix the mold from Harvey. Uh, Even though they understand the problems, they would tell you, please don't shut them down because I will die of starvation before I die of pollution. They're worried about jobs. And so what do you tell the pipe fitters and the cafeteria workers in Port Arthur? What will happen to them if these places go dark? So I would say two things to them. The first one is... That's not the only job in Port Arthur over the next 20 years. I've seen Port Arthur. Port Arthur is going to need a lot of infrastructure rebuilding and strengthening. It's going to need a lot of help right on the water. Those are good jobs. Those are union jobs. Those are skilled jobs. We have a lot of work to do, and I hope the workers in Port Arthur will be a big part of that. That's part one. But part two is who's making the real money? off Port Arthur and those workers. Who's making that money? It's the investors. It's the Saudis who own this company. How is it in a democracy that we could have a handful of corporations that year after year keep dragging in bigger and bigger profits while the oceans continue to rise, while your home disappears, while your children have asthma, while people die, that's not right. And the reason it is happening is Washington. Washington could have put a stop to this decades ago, but they didn't. Washington is corrupt. 
It is taking money from the fossil fuel industry, from the big polluters, and it's doing exactly what they want, which is mostly nothing. And if we don't call that out and attack it head on, understand, in the next few years, oh, there will be bills that will be called climate bills. They'll have fabulous names. All air has just been cleaned up. Water is is now pure and wonderful. That'll be the name of the bill, comma, brought to you by Exxon. (laughs) Read the fine print on what that bill says. So the way I see this is we have to attack the corruption head on. Because until we attack that corruption head on, so long as those guys continue to call all the shots, then we're not going to be able to make the changes that we must make. These changes are no longer optional. They're no longer there as a maybe yes, maybe no. This is our future. This is our children's future. This is our grandchildren's future. And we are running out of time. So for me, head on is to attack the corruption in Washington that keeps Washington working for these big fossil fuel companies. I want to bring in a video question. This is from Bren Smith. He lives in New Haven, Connecticut. Mm -hmm. He was a commercial fisherman. Now he works as a shellfish farmer. Bren, what's your question? Hi, Bren. My oyster farm was destroyed by two hurricanes. Now warming waters and acidification are killing seed coast to coast and reducing yields. Those of us that work on the water, we need climate solutions and we need them now. The trouble is, is the Green New Deal only mentions our oceans one time. This is despite the fact that our seas soak up more than 25% of the world's carbon. So what's your plan for a Blue New Deal for those of us working on the ocean? I like that. Make sure that all of us can make a living on a living planet. So I thank you. I think it is a great question. I think he's got it exactly right. We need a Blue New Deal as well. Good for you. You know, I I just want to say on this one about the oceans, the rising acidification and the and the fact that now in Boston, right, the lobsters move to Maine because it's too warm in the in the waters and the food for them doesn't grow appropriately Mm -hmm. and so on. I talk to folks who fish commercially off our shores down by New Bedford, up by Gloucester. You know what they tell me? They keep pulling stuff up that they don't even know what it is. And so what do they do? I talked to one who said, so I call my brother-in-law who fishes commercially off the coast of Florida because I send him pictures and he says, oh, yeah, we used to catch those down here. But now they've moved to Boston and to the waters around Massachusetts and New England. So here's what really scares me. This isn't slowing down. It's speeding up. Where are they going next? And what are we going to be left with? We count on our oceans for life, not just for food, but what it means in our entire climate. So I love it. You want to call it a blue new deal? Count me in. But part of getting the carbon out of the air, out of the water, out of the soil, is also about the change in what's happening in our oceans, these big dead patches now and the patches of trash, Um, which goes back to a point I was making earlier, and that is we can't just think about cleaning up the United States of America. 
we cannot think about from the East Coast to the West Coast, plus Hawaii and Alaska. We can't just think from the Canadian border down to the border with Mexico. We have to think about the whole world. And that's why many of my plans intersect with our global opportunities and responsibilities. Like I said, lots of plans, elizabethwarren.com slash climate, because we've got to be working on all fronts. So we have a couple minutes left. Okay. Uh, let's talk about one of the metrics of your commitment to the problem. You've said it's the ultimate threat to life on Earth. One of the metrics of commitment is how much money you're going to put toward it. Uh, you say $3 trillion over 10 years. Mm-hmm. And Senator Sanders says he's going to do $16 trillion. Does that mean he is more dedicated to this than you? No. <laughs> but, but let me tell you why. Um, and that is, yeah, I've got plans. I've got a $2 trillion plan. I've got a $1 trillion plan in picking up how we're going to cut uh, carbon emissions by 70% by 2035. But we've got to use all the tools in the toolbox. This is not a moment where we just say, you know what, we just need to put some money on it and then we're going to fix this problem. It takes money. Boy, don't get me wrong. It takes money to make this investment. But we need to be willing to use our regulatory tools. That's an important part of it. We have to use our position internationally. So my trade policy also includes climate elements to it. Look, here's a piece of it. I think that we need a climate adjustment fee on products that are imported to the United States. Think about it this way. There's something that takes a lot of carbon to produce. We can't simply export our pollution and say as long as they produce it across the border somewhere else, then it's okay with us and we'll still buy it here. No, we want to create the right kind of competition for our industry here, but we also want to think globally. Then the answer is you want to import something here in the United States, we want to know. How much carbon was used to produce that? And let's think about how we have to equalize price on it. People want to get to the American markets. You want to get to the American market? Then you've got to sign on to some basic climate agreements, right? We are not going to give favored nation uh, trading partnership rights to countries that are polluting. We need to think in a global sense. Now, that doesn't, it's not dollars out of the treasury, but it has an effect worldwide. So I think of this as we've got to approach this from a lot of different ways. I want to say I proudly uh, adopted many of Governor Inslee's plans. He said, have at them, they're open source. My view is you go everywhere where there's a good idea, mm-hmm. including a, a blue New Deal. <laughs> Pick them up and use them because the only way we're going to make change is if we're looking everywhere and we keep testing it, figure out what works, do more of that. What doesn't work, we have to let it go. But we have got to make change and we've got to make it now. Senator Elizabeth Warren, thank Thank you you very much. A millennial candidate, he says change on the climate is personal for young people. Also, you have former Congressman Beto O'Rourke coming up and Senator Cory Booker. So stay with CNN. And again, thank you, Senator Warren. Thank you.
one night, 10 top Democratic candidates answering questions from Democratic and independent voters about one urgent issue, the climate crisis. Welcome to our viewers in the United States and around the world. I'm Chris Cuomo. Now, I want to show you something that just gives you the status of the crisis. Look behind me. On one side, this is a picture of an actual wildfire burning right now. This is just outside Los Angeles, La Cresta, California, okay? So that's one type of situation that we're seeing more and more of that scientists say is indicative of climate change. Now on the East Coast, as you all know, we're dealing with Hurricane Dorian. And again, scientists tell us consistently that we are seeing more intense storms more frequently that are more complicated by the effects of climate change. These are both happening right now on our watch. The question is, what will be done about it? Scientists are telling us we're seeing the consequences of the climate crisis, okay? They also say that we could cross a massive tipping point. If what? If the world warms more than 1.5 degrees Celsius, it's just about three degrees Fahrenheit. Now, we've already warmed up the planet one degree Celsius since the Industrial Revolution. So we're more than halfway there. Young people are worried about a livable future for the planet. It's not some abstract idea for them. We have three 2020 candidates left here to talk about this urgent issue. We have former Congressman Beto O'Rourke. We have Senator Cory Booker there ahead. Joining us right now, South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Welcome, Mr. Mayor. Good to see you. All right, let's get right to the questions. Let's bring in Dr. Linda Rudolph. All right, she's from Oakland, California. She's the director of the Center for Climate Change and Health at the Public Health Institute. Her family home was destroyed in Sonoma wildfires. We were just showing one burning right now outside uh, Los Angeles. So, doctor, sorry for your loss. Thank you for participating tonight. What's your question? Good evening. Major health organizations representing millions of doctors, nurses, and health professionals have declared that climate change is a health emergency. Under your leadership, South Bend does not yet have a climate action plan. Given that your own city has been slow to act, how can I and other health professionals be confident that you will address the climate health emergency with the urgency it requires, and how will you do so? Well, first of all, I'm I'm so sorry about what happened to your home. And we are underway on a climate action plan. Uh, We were one of the cities that committed joining with cities around the world to uh, live up to the Paris commitments, even if our national governments are failing to do it. And right now, we have built out the capacity to assess what's happening with greenhouse gases in our city and act on it. We've undertaken energy savings contracts to make our buildings more energy efficient, set up electric vehicle charging points so that uh, we're modeling what needs to happen with the future of transportation. And we're doing it because we're living in a country where our national government has failed. And cities around the world, beginning with the C40 that New York right here was one of the first members of back in 2007, have said, we can't even wait for the national governments to catch up. Now, having said all that, the reality is cities can't do it alone. This is going to require action at every level of government and beyond government. We are only going to be able to tackle the climate issue when this amounts to a major national project that enlists the abilities 
of the public sector, the private sector, the academic sector, and folks who up until now have often been made to feel like they're part of the problem, like rural America. We have to stand tall and believe that this is something all of us have pride in and can get done, or it's not going to happen. You know, all night, uh, I've been catching at least some of the, uh, the other sessions that have gone on, and all of us are basically using the same language. We're talking about existential threat. We're talking about urgency. We're competing over which one of our targets it's more accurate. But the fundamental question is, how are we actually going to get it done? Because we've been having this same conversation for years. I think in order for that to happen, we have to actually unify the country around this project. And that means bringing people to the table who haven't felt that they've been part of the process. I mean, this is the hardest thing we will have done certainly in my lifetime as a country. This is on par with winning World War II, perhaps even more challenging than that. Does anybody really think we're going to meet that goal if between now and 2050, we are still at each other's throats? It's not going to happen. We've got to figure out a way to rally, and that means everybody from cities to farms to the federal government to the international community. I'm prepared to lead us to get that done. A quick question before we go back to the audience. You have a new proposal out uh, about what you do with climate. You talk about how municipalities can work uh, using the Defense Department. You talk about uh, how farmers can deal with it. Not as much attention paid, at least in the writing, uh, to what you do to those who produce the fossil fuels and are making the money off it. We just listened to Senator Warren. That is obviously a big part of her focus on this is going after the big companies. Is that part of your prospect also? And if so, how? Absolutely. First of all, it's one of the reasons why I've proposed that we assess a carbon tax. And I know you're not supposed to use the T word when you're in politics, but we might as well call this what it is. There is a harm being done, and in the same way that we have taxed cigarettes, we're going to have to tax carbon. Now, the difference with my plan is that I propose that we rebate all of the revenue we collect right back out to the American people on a progressive basis so that low- and middle-income Americans are made more than whole. We're going to have to spend a lot of federal money in order to deal with the crisis, but I'm proposing that we get that from other sources because we need to make sure that the carbon tax is something whose incidence is on the polluters not on the American people, especially lower income people who are already suffering so much and climate change is only going to make it harder. Mm. All right, let's take a question from the audience. We have Amanda Freund. She's from East East Canaan, Connecticut. Sorry about that. She works on her family's dairy farm. She also sells biodegradable pots made from cow manure, (laughs) Uh, flower pots, not like pots you cook in. That would be a terrible idea. (laughs) So what is your question, Amanda? Thank you. Uh, so the average American dairy farmer, or the average American farmer is 58 years old. I'm 34. My family is discussing the transition of our dairy farm to the next generation. But we're experiencing unprecedented weather events, um, economic and, and environmental uh, challenges. And so I am wondering what you can do and what your plan is to stay, put, bring stability back to the ag sector so that farmers like me can actually meet the environmental regulations that will be put in place to combat climate change and stay in business. Right. This is so important because the entire way of life is being threatened. And it's hard enough without climate change, right? And it's getting harder under this administration between uh, the trade wars and the things that are happening with consolidation that are making it difficult to get ahead. Uncertainty is one of the biggest enemies that a farmer has. And we're adding an awful lot of it uh, with what's happening with climate change. It's one of the reasons why farmers have the most to lose. But I also believe, and clearly you're pioneering this, that, that rural Americans can be such a huge part of the solution. To me, 
the quest for the net zero emissions cattle farm is one of the most exciting things we might undertake as a country. It can be done right now, strictly speaking, scientifically, but it's completely unaffordable, of course, to make it pencil out. We need to change the economics of it. And yes, that means federal investment. That means more investment in USDA, the Department of Agriculture's R&D. It also means investing more in things like the Conservation Stewardship Program for uh, growers to make sure that we're doing the right things with uh, soil management. Sounds like this is hitting a nerve. And yet you almost never hear about it, right? I mean, scientifically, and I know we're moving away from cattle a little bit to, uh, to the planting side, but uh, there is the potential of our soil to take in as much carbon as the entire transportation sector puts out. We've got to unlock that. The, the way I see it, in the same way that we as a country are rightly proud of Norman Borlaug and the Green Revolution that fed a billion people, we should be just as proud of the steps we're about to take as a country with ag- American agriculture leading the way to green global agriculture in a different fashion. Imagine what it would mean if uh, a net zero emissions cattle farm were as big a symbol of American achievement in fighting the climate crisis as an electrical vehicle. We'd be so proud of it. And it might also be helpful at coffee after church with folks you know in in your rural communities who uh, maybe are hesitating to embrace democratic visions of of climate because it sounds like we're telling them they're part of the problem. So thanks for what you're doing to lead the way on that. So one of the issues in creating change is that there's so many different sensitivities. Uh, there's so many if-thens when it comes to what you do with our environment. For instance, one of the uh, elements of your plan is biofuels as an alternative source. Then you get into people who will say, well, but the way you fertilize corn to make your biofuel adds nitrogen to the water, and that right. creates hypoxia or dead areas and algae blooms. So that's part of the problem now. Your solution becomes part of the problem. How do you get to where you need to be? Well, the beauty of things like a carbon tax is it lets a lot of these things get sorted out without anybody in Washington having to figure out all the answers. We make sure that our economy itself, including the productive power of the private sector in America, is driving towards solutions if and only if the pricing uh, actually reflects the cost of carbon. So that's part of it. Part of it is making sure that we rally the entire country toward really aggressive goals and that we're neutral about how it gets done as long as we actually get it done. Look, we're not going to figure out when we're doing a moonshot like this, we're not going to have politicians figuring out every piece of how to get it done any more than President Kennedy had the rocket trajectories figured out when he said we were going to go to the moon. We set the goal and then we challenge America to live up to it, both with incentives and with requirements and regulations. Let's bring in Nicole Carty from Brooklyn, New York. She's a progressive organizer, currently supports Senator Elizabeth Warren. Nicole, what's your question? Hi. Hi. Um, Good evening. Um, Mayor Buttigieg, for decades, working class communities and communities of color have been the first to be hit by pollution and the last to rebuild after climate disasters. After Hurricane Katrina, two-thirds of people who lost their jobs were women and black Americans are three times more likely to die from pollution. How would you use the Green New Deal to bring Americans together and address racial, gender, and socioeconomic disparities? You know, this is such an important example of the moral stakes of dealing with climate. This is not only a question of generational justice. It is a question of, of social racial and gender justice. And as you cited in your questions, uh, communities of color and communities that have already been disadvantaged by prejudice and hatred in this country are being made even worse off by what's happening with climate. We've seen it in South Bend. Some of those most impacted by some of the historic flooding that we've seen were those who were economically 
least able to deal with it. We're seeing uh, far more black kids uh, needing to be treated for asthma uh, than white kids. That's not a coincidence. That's a consequence of things like economic disempowerment and because uh, a lot of folks are, were redlined intentionally into neighborhoods that are closer to sources of pollution. Uh, and so it's one of the reasons why our Douglas plan for dealing with systemic racism in this country looks at how everything from economic empowerment to housing comes into play. We're also proposing health equity zones. And this has a strong overlap with environment because while some of the reasons that, for example, black patients are at a disadvantage with public health outcomes has to do with what happens when they go into a doctor's office or a hospital. A lot of it's what happens in your own home, in your own environment, because of these environmental factors. So I'm proposing that we fund communities developing community solutions toward health equity, including dealing with issues that are exacerbated by climate or caused by environmental problems, without saying that we're going to prescribe it all from Washington, but putting real dollars from Washington behind those community plans to deliver health equity and justice, with environmental issues being one of the main drivers of both the problem and potentially the solution. Got a video question for you. This is from Seth Macy. He lives in Wichita, Kansas. He's a programmer at Wichita State University. Here's his question. What's one question you would ask Donald Trump about climate change during a debate? (laughs) Wow. Look, I don't know that you can get to this president by asking him a question. I don't think you can get to him at all. And it's not just him. It's all of the enablers in the congressional GOP, right? I mean, this matters. And they need to know that they will be remembered for generations. You could argue that of all the horrible things that this president has done, uh, the one that will most be remembered 50 or 100 years from now will have to do with the failure to act on climate. At least that's what it'll be like if this goes down in history as the, the time that we fail to get something done. I mean, Congress right now is like, it's like a room full of doctors arguing about what to do over a cancer patient. And half of them are arguing over whether medication or surgery is the best approach. And the other half are saying cancer doesn't exist. Think of what a disservice this is. This is a life or death issue. And the president, he's busy drawing uh, with a Sharpie on a hurricane map. He's completely in a different reality than the rest of us. And the problem is we, we don't have the luxury of debating whether this is an issue. So I can't think of anything I, I could ask him other than, uh, w- would you please step aside and allow us to do something about this issue? Because you're clearly not ready to leave. To your own point about what the aspects of persuasion are here, in a recent poll, your home state, Indiana, uh, 51% of people asked believe that human activity is the reason for climate change. Um, And you would also have to deal with the president in terms of what his administration has done to roll back things. So you may not have a question, but you're going to need some answers. What would you say to the people who say, I'm not so sure about this? And what would you say about the people who say, well, he rolled these things back. What are you going to do to bring them back? Well, look, some of the things he did by executive action, we can undo by executive action. But this time, let's actually put some legislation behind it so it's not at the whim of a president. But I think the real issue we've got to have, especially in very conservative places like where I live in Indiana, uh, the real conversation we've got to have is about what's at stake here beyond the traditional battle lines that have been drawn. This ought to be a bipartisan issue. This once was a bipartisan issue, and now it's gone completely off the rails. So let's talk about some other dimensions of what's at stake. Let's talk about national security. 
at a time when our military leaders say that this is one of the greatest threats to stability. There's a lot of evidence that the Syrian civil war is one of the first that was partly caused as a consequence of climate change. If we really want to talk about security, let's talk about securing the lives of future generations. Let's talk in language that is understood across the heartland about faith. You know, if if you believe that God is watching as poison is being belched into the air of creation, and people are being harmed by it. Countries are at risk of vanishing in low-lying areas. Who do you suppose God thinks of that? I bet he thinks it's messed up. And you don't have to be religious to see the moral dimensions of this, because frankly, every religious and non-religious moral tradition tells us that we have some responsibility of stewardship, some responsibility for taking care of what's around us, not to mention taking care of our neighbor. And eventually it gets to the point where this is less and less about the planet as an abstract thing and more and more about specific people suffering specific harm because of what we're doing right now. At least one way of talking about this is that it's a kind of sin. Mr. Mayor, thank you very much. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have more of our CNN Climate Crisis Town Hall. Stay with us. With CNN's Climate Crisis Town Hall, we have Democratic presidential candidates answering your questions about the climate emergency. Up next, we'll have former Congressman Beto O'Rourke. But now we have more questions for Mayor Buttigieg. It's good to have you. Let's go right to the audience. We have Bill Jordan, Troy, New York. He's the founder and CEO of Jordan Energy. They do solar panel installation, as well as being the co-founder and board president of the Let's Share the Sun Foundation, which installs solar panels in poor parts of of the world. Bill, thank you for being a part of this. What's your question? Hi, Mayor Pete. Hi. I had the pleasure of meeting your dad several years ago when he was administering the Hesburgh-Usker Scholarship Program at Notre Dame. Uh, Like most fathers, he was proud of you and sought to help make a better world for his children. How do you and Chasen think about leaving the world a better place, particularly around the climate change issues discussed here today, to the next generation and any children you may choose to raise? Well, we're hoping to have kids one day, and I want to know that our kids can thrive. When I got into this campaign, I talked a lot about the idea of generational justice. And at first, people looked at me funny because I don't think it's something that's been talked about much. But each of us has an obligation to do our part, not only to be just to those around us, but to those who will come in the future. And I think you know, when we're on the campaign trail now and and more and more, the questions I get from kids are about climate. They're almost always either about gun violence or about climate. These are personal questions. They're asking about whether they're going to be able to thrive. Again, it's why I think this isn't just saving the planet. This is saving the future for specific people who are alive right now. Uh, I also, frankly, think of it a little more selfishly because when we're talking about whether we hit this target of 2050, decarbonizing our economy, uh, you know, Lord willing, I plan to be here. Uh, I would be in my 60s by the time we know whether we have succeeded and can look back at 2020 and be proud of what we did to begin getting on the right track or realize that we're the ones who blew it. Uh, these are the years. You know, we talk about 2030 as a deadline, but in many ways, 2020 is the deadline because if we're not underway by the time the new president takes office, we really have lost 
our last shot. It's why there is so much riding on this election. And for me and everybody I know, for uh, the children that we hope to have, for the people who will be alive at the turn of the century, when if we don't change what we're doing, we could lose half the world's oxygen because of what's going on in the oceans. That is unthinkable. And we owe it to, we just cannot look in the eyes of a child right now with a straight face and say we're doing right by them. We owe it to them to get this done before it's too late. Mr. Mayor, under the category of uh, being the change you want to see, air travel is about 2% of green uh, house gas emissions. The number of travelers obviously going up around the world. Private air travel, therefore even worse because it serves a smaller population. Your second quarter filing uh, says you, your campaign spent about 300 grand on private filing. You're going to get the finger shaken at you that Look, you should not be doing that if you're going to be the green guy. Look, I'm interested in decarbonizing the fuel that goes into air travel. I also don't believe we're going to abolish air travel. This is a big country. And while I absolutely think we can do more to provide alternatives like trains, uh, I don't think that we're going to solve the question of how to get around the world uh, without air travel. This is, this is the sort of thing that uh, I think we need to look at in a common sense kind of way. And uh, the right loves to sink their teeth into anything we say that makes it seem like we're being unreasonable when actually all we're saying is that there's got to be a way to make it uh, less carbon intensive. Sometimes I, I took the subway today. Sometimes I fly because this is a very big country and I'm running to be president of the whole country. But uh, look, (laughs) you know, it involves meeting voters everywhere. But look, we do need to do more to provide alternatives to air travel. I mean, uh, think about the train system, right? In a country that views itself as the greatest, the most modern, the most sophisticated in the world. How is it that we have such an inferior train system when trains are a lot easier to power on a green basis because they run on electricity? Uh, You know, think what it would mean for Areas like the industrial Midwest, where I live, if places from Indianapolis to Chicago, South Bend, Detroit, Minneapolis, and so on, were just a few hours away from each other by train. I'm not even asking for Japanese-level trains. Just give me, like, Italian-level trains, and we would be (laughs) way ahead of where we are right now. But that's going to require policy choices and investment. And to anybody who says we shouldn't subsidize trains, they got to stand on their own two feet, think about just how many ways we subsidize driving, which is among the most carbon-intensive things we could be doing. Mm. Italian trains, you'd have a huge upgrade in food. Two, probably there you go. on the trains. Yeah. That'd be a nice Bonus. Thing. All right, we have our chief climate correspondent, Bill Weir. Bill, what's your question? Mayor, every hour of every day, uh, actually every minute of every day, humanity buys one million plastic bottles. The amount of plastic produced in a year is roughly the same as the entire weight of humanity. And as we know in this recycling crisis, it doesn't go away. It's ending up in everything from salt to seafood. So what would you do about this? Plenty of Democrats want to make polluters pay, but does that apply to every company that puts harmful packaging out into the waste stream? I think it does, because this is one more example of where corporations are uh, literally pushing out the true cost of what they do into a place where it can't be seen. Only it comes back at us. It harms habitats. It ruins environments. And it is profoundly irresponsible. So we need to make sure that we have regulations and incentives that promote things like biodegradable alternatives to plastic. There's already so much going into this. By the way, some of it is coming from sources that are being grown in the heartland of America. We've got to double down on those kinds of investments so that we feel proud rather than guilty uh, when we do handle something that uh, takes the place of plastic, uh, looks like plastic, but is much more responsible for the environment. Question from David Lowe, a retired religion professor from Flowertown, Pennsylvania. David. Mayor Pete, thank you for being here with us. Um, It's not all big business's fault. So car companies, 
manufacturer gas guzzlers and ranchers raise livestock because we will buy their products. Do you model the kinds of spending changes that consumers need to adopt? I try to do, yeah, I try to do the right thing. Uh, I think about this when I'm making decisions as a consumer. Uh, before life changed a little bit for me, I tried to bike to work whenever I could as, as mayor in South Bend. Uh, but the reality is no individual can be expected single-handedly to solve this problem. It's going to require national action. And by the way, this is why we, and I, by we I mean like the human species, invented government. It's for dealing with issues that are too big for each of us to deal all acting on our own. This is the perfect use case for good government decisions. So when you look at the uh, transition that's needed on the consumer level, all right, one of the big things we hear all the time is, well, what will moving away from fossil fuels mean? Well, it means the internal combustion engine. So what do you do? to um, incentivize and to encourage people to move from one of the main parts of our existence, which is how we get around every day, to electric cars? Well, first of all, and this is in the climate plan that I put forward, we've got to make sure that we have the right kind of incentives for that. Expand the tax credits, set them up in the right way, and make sure eventually that we are requiring uh, that emissions fall to zero in American auto production. By the way, when we do that, uh, the companies can respond. The American auto industry is capable of great innovation, but we've got to set up the left and right boundaries for that. It's one of the reasons why the, the auto companies were actually ahead of the Trump administration when it was trying to pull us back. Uh, and again, this is something we try to do the right thing on personally, too. I can't afford a Tesla, but we did get a plug-in hybrid. And uh, I think that uh, the, the potential from a consumer perspective to embrace these kinds of technologies is phenomenal. We just got to do our part to make sure that the economy reflects it. And the carbon taxing is part of that. Regulations are part of that. And making sure we build a culture in which we embrace green solutions is going to be part of that, too. Part of the competition uh, in campaigns is about timing. Uh, yeah, I'll do it, too, but I'll do it faster. Mm-hmm. Uh, coal being removed from the economy in 10 years. Uh, that sounds hyper ambitious. Is that a realistic period? So we envision that taking longer, but I will say that we've got to do it as quickly as humanly possible because we see the consequences of this. They are upon us. Now, our vision, uh, which includes decarbonizing industry on a net basis completely by 2050, but intermediate steps from making sure our vehicles, our light vehicles, and then our heavy vehicles, and then our power grid uh, are each in turn eventually turning into net zero emissions, gets us there in time, at least if we believe the scientists' projections about what we have to do. Uh, But look, I don't think anybody's going to object to doing it quicker. The real issue is, again, not who set the right targets. I'm not going to quibble over a a five-year difference between this plan or that plan when we've been wrangling over the same plans for my entire adult lifetime. The question is, how are we going to break the logjam and actually make something happen? And that is going to require a different level of political will. It's going to require democratic reform so the dollars can't outvote people. And by the way, if the only way that we can establish as a matter of American constitutional law that a corporation is different than a person and that spending money to influence an election is different than speech, if the only way we can clear that up is with a constitutional amendment to reverse Citizens United, then that's what we're going to have to do, because otherwise we see the conflict. All right, uh, let's bring in Nancy Wilmer from Brooklyn, New York. She's a retired psychology professor and full-time volunteer climate activist. Nice to have you with us, Nancy. Thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. All people want good jobs, and as a proud union member, I'd say we all want good union jobs. That ensures the good jobs. And everyone wants a safe community to live in, clearly. 
but what would you do to ensure a just transition for displaced workers in the new renewable energy economy and for people from communities, particularly communities of color, most affected by climate change in your vision of a Green New Deal? And will you support the uh, upcoming global student strike on September 20th for climate? Great. So uh, I'll start with the last one's easy, which is uh, I'm very supportive. So yes. Great. Um, Thank you. And again, this is there's something about the moral authority of young people looking into the eyes of those in charge and saying, what are you doing to protect us? That I think on on issues from guns to climate is part of why we're finally going to see change. Uh, And so we've got to embrace these actions that make it possible for for the political conversation to be shaken up the way that it needs to be. Now, in terms of the broader question about jobs, this is extremely important in the industrial Midwest where I live. And again, people need to see where they have a a role in this future and a role besides that of victim. And we can do that. As you know, a lot of the jobs that are being created in the green economy are also good paying union jobs. And jobs, not all of them are exotic. A lot of them are good old fashioned building trades jobs that we're going to need more of to do the retrofits to get the energy efficiency that we need. We can create tremendous economic opportunity. But let's be honest about the fact that this also means transition for a lot of people. It's one of the reasons why my climate plan includes funds that will support everything from retirement to healthcare to transition assistance for people who do find, as a result of this national mobilization we've got to undertake, uh, that their role in the economy is shifting. But let's be honest, this is about more than money, uh, as important as it is to replace the income of people whose incomes are disrupted. This is also about identity. When somebody has been in a certain industry, perhaps providing for their family for generations, we got to make sure that we recognize that that has been a source of community and identity and purpose, as well as income. And that's why sometimes these uh, well-intentioned retraining programs, at least where I come from, leave a lot of people cold. So we got to make sure that we're providing the same source of pride the same source and sense of identity that you get from whatever your role might have been in a form of the economy that's going to have to transition out. You have that same sense of pride for what you're doing and helping us move toward a new economy that we're going to be proud of for generations to come. So you have the anxiety of the worker. Um, but as uh, David was asking earlier, there is something about the anxiety of the consumer and the citizen. One of the things that we keep being told by science is, you know, this cattle issue is a real situation. And as he was pointing out, it really is about supply and demand. If you don't want the beef, they don't raise the cattle the same way. But that's a big ask in American culture. So what do you say to the Americans that you want to persuade who maybe aren't that left? Maybe they're in the center or center right. And they're saying, you want me to eat less beef? Look, First of all, I'm from Indiana. And secondly, I love cheeseburgers. So I get that this is uh, an issue. And the, the important thing to understand and get across is that we can have a more balanced diet and therefore a more balanced footprint and not propose that they abolish the cow, which is what a lot of people are saying about the Green New Deal. Not because that's what it actually envisions, but because it's an easy Republican talking point. Of course, we need balance in all of our consumption patterns. And part of what a carbon tax and dividend does is it resets the price signals in the market uh, to help make that happen without ordering Americans 
to abandon uh, something that is very important to them. Instead, we, we change the economic signals, we bring it into balance, and balance is what we have lost when it comes to our relationship with creation, with the earth that sustains our ability to live. Let's go to a video question. Uh, Brianne Foster, she's in Montgomery, Alabama. She's an Air Force reservist and a school science teacher. Great. Here's Brianne's question. Good evening. The U.S. military is heavily reliant on fossil fuels and is a significant contributor to global greenhouse emissions. Additionally, military resources and bases are at risk from sea level rise and increased heat. What is your plan to ensure that the military helps to solve the climate crisis instead of contributing to it, while also preparing for a new climate reality? What a great question, and there's a lot of pieces in there. Part of it's the threat side, the fact that global threats are evolving as a consequence of climate. We already mentioned Syria, but also uh, there is a lot of reason to believe that migration and immigration issues are going to get more difficult at our own borders as a consequence of climate-related disruption. So we know it's changing the threats. We know that bases right now are vulnerable. The exciting thing is that the military can also be a huge part of the solution. You know, one of the things that uh, was certainly true when I was in the military is that you just figure out a way to get done what you have been ordered to do. The military's got an amazing capacity to rally to achieve what is being asked of them. And frankly, there have been times, even though we think of the military as a conservative institution, there are times when the military has actually been out front relative to a lot of parts of America. And by following instructions to get something done, helps bring other parts of America along. It was true with racial integration of the armed forces. It was true in some measure with the end of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, too. Uh, a workplace that is ahead of some other workplaces, sadly, in this country, when it comes, at least officially speaking, to LGBT equality. Imagine if we harness that same ability to get things done when it comes to the biggest crisis on our plates. By making sure that, for example, uh, fleet and future uses of fuel uh, are relying on biofuels, by making sure that the installed base of the American military footprint is carbon neutral or carbon negative. Even making sure, before you get to the ships and the airplanes and the, pace, uh, the bases, just making sure that the U.S. military, which is a huge purchaser of things like ordinary cars and vans, uh, is leading the way in ensuring that we meet targets of doing it that are uh, of purchasing vehicles that are zero carbon. And my plan calls for us to do that very quickly. I think that the purchasing power of the U.S. military and just the resolve of our service members to get stuff done when it is a national priority could help lead the way for the rest of society and be one more example of how we create the sense of a national mobilization a national project that summons everything that all of us bring to the table in order to deal with something that we know we will regret if we don't act fast. Thank you very much, Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Thank you. Thanks, Mayor. All right, in just a moment, you're going to have former Texas Congressman Beto O'Rourke. He says climate change is the greatest threat the nation faces. Plus, you're going to have Senator Cory Booker. That's all ahead. Again, thank you, Mayor Buttigieg, and please stay with CNN. Thank you. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.